For this Advent season, we are in the midst of a series, a series of sermons that is rooted in the first of several statements made by the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Great indeed, he writes, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That first statement, he was manifested in the flesh, means he was revealed, he was made known, he was displayed for all to see. This is the doctrine that we call the doctrine of the incarnation. For Christians, it is what Christmas is really all about. Whether you celebrate it in your homes, and there are Christians who do not, and or whether you do, the meaning of Christmas from the Christian perspective is very clear. It is a remembering of, a celebration of the incarnation of God in human flesh, that God the Son took on our human flesh. It is what this same author John wrote in his gospel that bears his name in John 1.14 and the word and You read previously in John 1, you know the word is divine, it is God himself, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Paul tells Timothy that we profess as Christians. He was manifested in the flesh. One writer says this expression stresses the humanity that the word added to himself in the incarnation. The word did not merely fill a human body, taking the place of its heart and soul and mind. No, the word, the divine logos, God himself in the person of his son, took on everything, became flesh. He took on everything that is inherent to true humanity without surrendering anything of his deity, such that the incarnate Son of God is no less human than any other human. That is a remarkable thought, a wonderful thought, as we think about what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen in our study in this series so far how central and important this doctrine is when we've studied 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians chapter 2. In 1 Peter 4, we learned that since Christ therefore suffered in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Jesus, having suffered in the flesh, where he chose to suffer instead of sin, is the very means by which sin has lost its power in our lives. It is because of Jesus suffering in the flesh and having victory over the flesh and sin in the flesh that he was able to conquer for us the power of sin. And so Paul or Peter tells us we're to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. And Romans 6 reminds us that that is exactly why Jesus suffered and died in the flesh, to defeat sin and its power. 
Last week from Ephesians 2, we learn, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the body, Paul tells us, in his flesh he made the two one. He has broken down in his flesh that middle wall of division between Jew and Gentile and any other ways in which people are divided. He's removed the enmity. He's brought peace through his death on the cross, through his body of flesh. He has reconciled us to God and to one another and is now in that same body, building us together into a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is how central, how important it is, this doctrine of the incarnation. This morning, we look at another foundational passage in 1 John chapter 4 that highlights how central this doctrine is of Christ taking on human flesh, how central it is to our faith, his true humanity and divinity, the dual nature of Christ, is what one writer calls the non-negotiable doctrine of the Christian faith. There is no negotiating here. There's no halfway point that we can say, well, part of this is true. This is the wonder of Christmas. It is the truth of the gospel. It is a non-negotiable doctrine of our faith. And so to that end, that we might understand it better, please stand as we hear God's word read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This again is the word of the living God. Beloved, John writes, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach this passage, which so clearly presents to us that non-negotiable doctrine of our faith, we pray that you would guide us, lead us by the spirit of truth, that we might have understanding and grow in this understanding, rejoicing all the more in our Savior who came in the likeness of human flesh. He came like us that he might redeem us. And so we pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us, I trust, especially this time of year, and especially if you love Charles Dickens, are fans of A Christmas Carol. You've probably read it many times, perhaps. You've probably watched it, many different versions of this great story. Maybe you even watched the Mickey Mouse version. 
We see Ebenezer Scrooge express his hatred of Christmas early on in the story in a conversation with his nephew. Merry Christmas, what right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, the nephew says, returned him gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer, ready to spar at the moment, said, Bah, and again followed it up with humbug. Bah, humbug. It was a phrase, of course, made famous by Dickens in his story of a man who hated Christmas. It means it's nonsense. It's foolishness. As you read through the story and you hear more of Scrooge's feelings, he had very strong feelings about those who celebrated Christmas, so much so that he said, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips, now bear with this, should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. For he viewed Christmas as nothing more than a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Well, if you know the story, and most of you do, you know how Scrooge came to meet three ghosts from Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And by those interactions, he came to love Christmas by the end of the story and promised that he would love and celebrate it every day of his life. Now, A Christmas Carol, we know, is not a theological work. It is a story about Christmas and all the warmth and love of the season, the caring for others and the joy of the season, but really without the emphasis upon the wonder of what we are speaking about this morning. However, there were those who lived long ago in the days of John the Apostle who probably rightly could be considered Scrooges. Those who lived in the time of the Apostle John would have said, bah, humbug, nonsense to this idea that God would take on human flesh. But as we shall see this morning, this doctrine and teaching is not only not nonsense, it is a doctrine that one must believe, according to John, in order to be a true Christian. This doctrine really is non-negotiable. When we talk about in Jude contending earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, when we understand Jude has in mind the idea that our faith has a series of doctrines or truths that must be believed, this surely is at the head of them and one of them, that God in the person of his son took on our human flesh in order that he might redeem us. And that really is what the passage is all about this morning. Now, you may remember two weeks ago, and in fact, I think it happened last week too, that we pastors are sort of moving away from three points and going to two. Don't get used to it. We're going to go back to three very quickly, but there really are only two places here, two points to make, and it's very easily divided, one through three and three or four through six. And it is the testing of the spirits in verses 1 through 3, and then the comfort that he speaks to those to whom he writes in verses 4 through 6. So look with me first at the testing of the spirits. That is the command he gives us, is it not? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. 
Now, we are studying on Wednesday nights the book of 1 John, and we're actually almost at this section. So for those on Wednesday, this maybe will serve as an introduction to that place when we come to it in our study on Wednesdays. The apostle is clearly concerned for his congregation throughout this letter. He's concerned about the false teachers who have crept in, much like Jude is concerned about those who have crept in unnoticed. He wants to warn them about those false teachers, and he does so in a most helpful and most direct way. He tells us the purpose that he is writing the book for, or the letter, I should say, and that is in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things. That is the whole of the book. I write them to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The, the gospel of John is written that they might come to have eternal life, that they might believe on Jesus and possess eternal life. This letter is written to those who already possess and know Jesus so that they might know for certain that they have eternal life. So throughout the letter, as we began in our study on Wednesdays and continue, there is a series of tests that he offers, a series of tests that these readers are to note with regard to how to determine whether or not they are true believers, true Christians and followers of Jesus. In those tests, they're generally, and commentators agree with this, divided into three main sections. There's the moral test, the social test, and then the doctrine test, what it is they believe. In this section, which really begins in chapter 3, where he introduces the idea that we are the children of God, as opposed to being children of the devil, that's the contrast, he says there are three tests that you can use and, and, and use to examine your own life, to know whether you are truly a child of God. I would commend these to you as we do on Wednesday nights. In the moral test, in the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about that a child of God is one who delights in and practices or walks in righteousness. That is, his life demonstrates the righteousness of God in Christ by their actions, how they live. They're not lawless against the law. They're not willing to disobey God, but they're walking in righteousness. They're following God's commandments. There's a test for you. Are you someone who delights in and practices righteousness? That means then, if you are, by God's grace, you are his child. He then looks at a social test, which is right before this section. It begins in verse 11. The test here is the test of loving the brethren. We ought not to be like Cain and Abel. Cain hated his brother, killed him because his deeds were righteous. And because he did that, he stands as a contrast to how true believers are to be and live. We're to love one another, our brothers in the Lord. We're to serve them. We're to love them in the way that Jesus loved us. You see that in verse 16. By this you know what love is when you lay down your life for your brothers. And so you ought also to lay down your life for one another. When God joins us together as a body, unites us, knits us together as brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do. We use our gifts for the building up of the body. We serve one another. We share one another's burdens. We give selflessly to one another. And yes, we even, if called to, lay down our lives for one another. For no greater love has this, Jesus said, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
That's the social test. Are we ones who love our brothers? Now, in this section, we come to the doctrinal test. And the test is very clear. What is it that Christians must believe about Jesus? What must we believe about Jesus? Well, he tells us that there are competing ideas about Jesus in his day. And these ideas were very well known, though they were early in their formation in John's day. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many false prophets. Going out refers to the going out from the church, actually. John recognizes what Jesus said from among you, what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. From among you, there will be those who will teach false doctrine, who will seek to lead the people astray. So many have already gone out, he says. He's really picking up on the teaching that he uh, taught them back in chapter 2 when he speaks of what he refers to in verse 3 as the spirit of the Antichrist. This is the animating force, is it not? Anything that is false, opposed to the truth of God, is animated by the devil, the Antichrist, ultimately, but all that is opposed to Christ. And so in 1 John 2, he wrote these words, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. These false teachers, according to John, are literally called those who are against Christ. False teachers, as Paul warned the Corinthians, as he warned the Galatians, as the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself warned his followers. The warning here is clear that there are opposing forces, spirits in the world always. Many who teach doctrines regarding Christ that are against what God has said. And then the spirit that teaches what we are to believe about Jesus. Those are the competing forces. Devil, the Antichrist ultimately, animating these false teachers. There's a spirit about them that teaches these false doctrines that are opposed to Jesus and the spirit that teaches believers who he is. Now, in John's day, one of the main teachings about Jesus was a teaching known as Gnosticism, or at least Gnosticism in its earliest infant seed form. They believed in secret knowledge. That's the word gnosis that you see in the term or hear in the term. A secret knowledge that was sort of set apart for the elite. It set up almost a two-tier system of Christianity. There are those who are in the in, that is, who have special knowledge, and there are those who don't. There are many forms of that today. 
some of our charismatic uh, believers who believe in sort of the extra blessing or the gifting of God that are for a certain elite sort of follow this idea of secret knowledge or prophecy being given to special people as opposed to others. But they also believed in this view, which was very Greek, very Platonic, very pervasive in the day of John, that believed as Plato did in the ideal and the reality. And so this idea that the physical was somewhat evil would tarnish because of uh, what it was, and the spirit only was good. This, this was a view they held as well, and it was the central guiding force in their understanding about who Jesus was from their perspective. When John writes about the incarnation, that every spirit that confesses in verse 2, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, they thought that was bah humbug, nonsense. How could that possibly be? How could it be that God, perfect, would unite himself with that which is basically and really just dirty, if you will, or evil? But that's exactly what the Spirit of God teaches us. In the extraordinary nanosecond in history, one writer says, the infinity and eternity of God was joined to all the limitations of space and time in our humanity. He was made like us in everything apart from sin. But in that instant as well, there came into existence the only person with the capacity to do what God required to usher in salvation. There were those teachers in John's day who were teaching something opposed to what the Spirit of God was teaching and what John and the other apostles were writing. When 1 John was written, certain ideas from this philosophy were affecting what they taught. To say that the eternal Son of God, Spirit, became eternally united to a human nature and body, mere matter, was particularly scandalous to Greek culture. And yet many in John's day held this heresy. Doceticism or docetism taught that the divine son only appeared to have a human body. It's from the Greek word which means appearance of. And so this idea that the divine son merely appeared to possess a human body. There were others who added to that and claimed that the human body of Jesus was merely an illusion and never really ever existed. Some taught that they believed the human Jesus was anointed with the divine Christ at his baptism. And then that divine Christ left prior to his crucifixion. They denied the permanent union of the human and divine in Jesus Christ. As one ancient commentator says, the spirit of the Antichrist dissolves the divine human unity of Jesus. That's what's at issue here in these first three verses. Anyone, John says, who would deny the incarnation possesses the spirit of Antichrist. A person may claim that Jesus was a great teacher, a great moral person, but while these things are true in their minds, they are not enough. If someone does not acknowledge him, 
as the incarnate Son of God, then we can be sure that he is not of the Father. This spirit, John says in verse 3, is of the Antichrist, is coming into the world, and as they all know, is already present in the world. Why make such a big deal about a doctrine that most people are confused about anyway, and most people give very little thought to it? Well, part of the reason we're doing this series is to remind us of the centrality and the importance of this doctrine. Think with me just for a moment about the death of sin. If Christ did not come in human flesh, if he never took upon himself our flesh, then the power of sin could never be defeated in human flesh. We can't do it. We are slaves to sin by nature. We needed someone to come in our likeness and flesh and choose to suffer instead of sin so that he might have the victory over sin, which again is why Paul says at the end of Romans 7, who can deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God in the Lord Jesus Christ because he came in human flesh. Think about the division which so often Uh, accompanies many uh, people in the life of the church, the division within the body that we see so often. How would that division ever be broken down if it were not for Jesus coming, as we learned last week, in human flesh? And, And in that flesh, in his body, broken on the cross, the veil being a picture itself of the dividing wall being torn apart and broken down, an entrance into the very presence of God given to Jew and Gentile alike and all divisions falling away because Jesus in human flesh broke down the middle wall of partition. We haven't spoken yet, but we surely will of the shedding of blood by which there is life. There is no life. There is no salvation. There is nothing related to it without the shedding of blood. That had to be through human flesh. It would not be our blood. It would not satisfy, for we're sinners. It had to be the blood of the spotless Lamb of God come in human flesh. How would we ever know peace with God except that Jesus had come in our likeness to bring us peace by suffering in our place and taking away the enmity of God against us? How would we ever have hope for the future that these bodies in which we live that get sick, that die, will one day be raised had not Christ in human flesh ascended into heaven with that humanity, our humanity, with the promise that he being raised first is the first fruits of all of those who will be raised from the dead. If he did not come in human flesh, brothers and sisters, we have no hope for the future. We have no hope for the resurrection. We have no hope for anything Not to say the least that if Jesus had not come in our flesh, borne our likeness, how could we ever be confident that this one truly knows us? He truly knows us. He's able to pray for us with knowledge because he walked in our flesh. He intercedes for us that we are but flesh and bones. He bore that flesh. He was victorious over it. And because of that, he is able to have compassion on us. 
to be with us and enter into the reality of our suffering because he walked that path before us. You can see why John speaks the way he does here in this passage and why it's a non-negotiable doctrine. The stake is high. The stakes are high. The cost is great. He who confesses that Jesus came in the flesh, that spirit is from God. Everyone who says that he has not, that spirit is not from God, but from the devil himself. So we see how important this is in these brief verses. But John does something, secondly, in verses 4 through 6, which I think demonstrate his heart as a pastor. He is a pastor of this flock. He knows that they are fearful of the many who have gone out from them. They were concerned. That's why he's writing it. Why did these people who were once in our pews, in our fellowship, among our body, why did they leave? And why are they teaching these false things? Can the same thing happen to me? Is it possible that I could end up like they are and leave and abandon the faith once for all delivered unto the saints? Well, John, in these verses, beginning as he does little children, a tender, loving term for them, says, you are from God. Remember, you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus told his disciples that they will have tribulation in this life, but do not be given to fear, he said, for I have overcome the world. John wants to comfort them. He wants to remind them that if the spirit of God lives within them, then they can know that they are from God and that that spirit will overcome the spirit of the Antichrist who is already in the world. For that spirit, and he's speaking here of the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. They hear them and they listen to them, that is the false teachers, because they are of the world. They refuse to hear John and the other apostles because they are of the world and they are not of God. But you, little children, he says, you are able to resist. You're able to stand in the day of trial when false teachers abound. You will not, he says, listen to the spirit of the world because the spirit of God lives within you. We heard that last week, one of the consequences of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile being broken down and unity being brought in the body of Christ is that he is building a building now made with the bricks, Peter says, of individuals joined together in one building for the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, individually and corporately. And so here's the comfort, brothers and sisters, as you face the same, perhaps, fear in your own life. What's, what's going to keep me in this path where I'm trusting now in God? What's going to prevent me from being led astray and taken away, as it were, and being taken out of the body? He says it's impossible for those who are truly in Christ because the Spirit of God dwells within them. This one, one writer says, is the Holy Spirit who dwells within all believers. As Christians, we enjoy the subjective testimony of his presence as he moves our own spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. Yet the presence of the spirit we have seen manifests itself in objective ways. 
particularly by having us hold firmly to the orthodox orthodox teachings of the apostles. He gives us faith to confess the incarnation, to say that we believe that God the Son took on human flesh for our sake, as well as every other essential doctrine. And by making this confession, we prove that we have the Spirit and are enabled to resist falsehood, just as John's original audience did. He's comforting them. He's telling them, don't be given to fear. God who has redeemed you has given you his spirit and that spirit will protect you. False teaching is overcome by the truth and we only know the truth if we submit ourselves to the spirit of truth himself. Therefore, we must surrender ourselves daily to him, asking him to illumine the word of God and to empower us for service. Without his guidance, we will not overcome the world. You see, it's that spirit to whom we submit every day that enables us to overcome the world. Jesus has already overcome the world, and in him we have as well. This is how we know what the spirit of truth is and what the spirit of error is. The one who confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. The one who denies it is the spirit of the Antichrist. Take comfort, brothers and sisters, that God will preserve his own through the spirit who dwells within us. He will keep us in the truth. He will lead us and grow us in those things as daily we give ourselves to him. Three things then as we close. Three things to note as we take away from this passage, not only the obvious teachings we've just looked at, but three C's. I came up with a C a little later this morning, and so they're all C's. They're helpful, three of them. Number one, still today we have to be careful. Does this kind of teaching exist today? You can be sure it does. It's everywhere. Turn on your TV. You'll hear preachers who preach and teach a doctrine different from what John is teaching here, who are modalists, teachers who are Unitarian ultimately in their views, believing there's just one God who exists in these three ways at different times. You have to be discerning and wise. This teaching is still there, and we're called to recognize it and acknowledge it and confess it to be what it is. When Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, be certain that they do not believe the gospel. Don't be deceived. More so, when you hear the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing the Messiah, rejoice in the beauty of their voices, but reject their teaching. They are the spirit of the Antichrist. They are not bearers and witnesses of the truth, despite their moral lives, despite their commitments to moral living in every way that often puts even true Christians to shame. They are of the spirit of the Antichrist. The same is true of Unitarians and others like them who reject this non-negotiable doctrine. Be careful, be wise, don't be fearful. Secondly, be confident today that in the midst of the error in our day, and I would encourage you to turn those errors off 
and seek and listen to the truth that is proclaimed by so many faithful men today in so many pulpits. You have no need to listen to those who deny this essential truth. But don't be given to fear. Secondly, be confident because the truth that John said to these believers is true of you too. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus has overcome the world. Thirdly, we must be conscious. I originally said intentional, but I mean intentional, but we must be conscious of this truth today. It is very easy for us to lose the focus of this truth and all that relates to it as we get caught up in the busyness of the season, the celebrations that we enjoy, the tangible, real joys of Christmas, being together with family and friends. They're all wonderful things. They're all the things which Dickens wanted his readers to understand about what Christmas was all about, the joy of Christmas the tangible joys of giving to others, of caring for others, of family and friends. But John says this is the test of whether we are truly Christian. Be conscious and aware as you celebrate this year. Do you believe that God took on human flesh? Do you believe that he came in our likeness and lived on this earth You see, the spirit of the Antichrist in the world continues to declare that this is merely a myth, a happy myth, but a myth, a nice story. It tells us that Jesus, we don't talk about Jesus being God because that's intimidating to people. They have to really deal with him then. And so they tell us he's a great teacher, which you know you've been taught uh, by both of us is an impossibility that Jesus could merely be a good teacher They smile, they tolerate our religious ideas, but they laugh at the idea of God becoming a man. But this is what we believe. It's a non-negotiable truth. It is what we must test, the spirits of the age and the spirit of God. And the spirit of God confesses, acknowledges, always points to and guides us to this very truth, that Jesus is God come in human flesh, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. When you're challenged by those who would challenge you, when they reject the idea that this could be true, simply ask them and continue to ask them, you know, the most important question is this, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus this Christmas? Christianity is grounded, John says, grounded in particular truth claims Particular doctrines, they're important for us to know. One of the most central ones John tells us in this passage is the incarnation. Perhaps you've never realized this morning how important Christmas really is. I don't mean, as Scrooge objected to it, everyone happy and merry. I mean what we confess as Christians and celebrate, that God did take on human flesh, that he dwelt among us in human form. He lived a perfect, spotless life, died a sinner's death, shed his blood for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. Without this understanding of Christmas, we have no real hope, no real joy, no real reason to love because we have no salvation. There is no salvation apart from the incarnation. 
There is nothing that follows in all of the story of the Bible and God's redemption of a people if there is not an incarnation. That's why John puts it where he does in his letter. We can end now with the way John does. And he reminds us that if we have this Jesus, then we truly possess life. And this is the testimony in chapter 5, he says, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son, this son who took on human flesh. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You see, this is the great divide today as it was in John's day. Where are you this Christmas? We're a week away. What do you believe about Jesus? May the Spirit of Christ remind you this day and this time of year that Christ is who God says he is. Come in human flesh for you. And because of that, may you be filled with joy now and always. And may you, and I'm changing Scrooge's words here, but it comes at the end of his novel. When Scrooge says this, but I'm changing it, I will honor Christmas, he says, in my heart and I will try to keep it all the year. I will live in the truth of who Jesus is. The Spirit of God shall strive within me. Let us pray. Father, what a marvel, what a wonder it is. Every time of year we come to this season, and every time of year we're as amazed as we were the year before that you would take on in the person of your son, our human flesh, that you would accomplish this great salvation from which all of it flows from this one truth, this non-negotiable doctrine that Jesus has come in the flesh. And we praise you and give you thanks for this great truth, for the spirit who teaches us and who keeps us in it. Would you comfort our hearts? Would you strengthen us? and our resolve that we might walk faithfully after him, giving you thanks, blessing your name for the joy and the hope that is ours because of him. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.